This is a post-Christian podcast. We are the Sacred Collective. All are respected, all are heard, all are welcomed. Join us. Hey, Barry, this is Brian. Hey, Brian, how are you? Good, how are you? Good, thanks. My associate. Oh, indeed. We do some podcasts together. Yeah, 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 I know. I know what you're up to. <laughs> oh, yeah? How's life? It's it's all right, man. It's been awful hectic recently, I'll, I'll tell you that. I got two new podcasts that I'm about to start releasing on my post-Christian podcasting network. Busy, busy, wow. busy. You're in the middle of podcast heaven, though. Heaven, huh? Maybe. Fine line between <laughs> heaven and hell, bud. Well, you know, as long as you don't believe any of the one, you're fine. <laughs> yeah, right? Yeah. And it frees you up to use both metaphors fluidly, so that's good. Indeed. You know? And fluidity is what it's all about these days. I think so. Gender fluidity, existential fluidity, metaphysical fluidity. <laughs> right. <you> know, <laughs> terrestrial. <laughs> I wonder what post-fluidity would look like. You know, fluidity that carries you past the state of fluidity. Yeah, I think that's called concrete. Oh, that's what it is. I was thinking, uh, once, once philosophy has fully digested... And uh, assumedly, then processed and and perhaps even excreted the death of God movement. Would that be the death yeah. of death of God? So, if death of God is dog, it would be like the death of dog. I think a lot of people are already talking about you know after the death after the death of the death of God. So you know, yeah, it's the do double g. <laughs> yeah, we should get Snoop Dogg on. Oh yeah, <laughs> yeah. get with it. Get with it, Caleb. The the artist formerly known as Snoop Lion. Yeah, Snoop Lion. <laughs> yeah. For shizzle. Talk For shizzle. Oh, my God. Talking dude. about Snoop Dogg, uh, I worked at a unnamed Christian university a couple of years ago, and the Super Bowl for at the NFL was in Minneapolis like two years ago, and right. apparently he came out with a gospel album. Cause he, yeah, he did. And so our college, BET, the, the Black Entertainment Network yeah. or whatever, called our college and was like, hey, we want to have – and they called like a week before the Super Bowl. And they were like, hey, we want to have this like uh, all the black people who are going to host the music and stuff. Can we have it in your college? And they were going to pay like thousands and thousands of dollars. So our college was like, uh, yeah. And they didn't know but Snoop – now Snoop Dogg but Snoop Lion mm-hmm. – was going to be the main host of the thing and doing do his stuff. So I thought it was kind of funny. The guy who's probably smoked smoked more weed than anybody else in the entire world was going to be at this Christian college. And I was like, is he going to just be in the green room just smoking weed the whole time? I guarantee. Uh, it's weird. Pretty much. The thing that money can do for you. I tell yeah. You. <laughs> A few years ago, I went to this uh, benefit dinner. Um, I, I Are you recording this? Yeah, yes. I started yet. Yeah. Do you want to officially? I don't know. Is, this, it is it really on the record or off? It doesn't really. Matter. It doesn't really matter. Okay. I went to this uh, benefit dinner um, for for the Lupus Foundation, mm-hmm. and because uh, I, uh, I was friends with Glenn Fry mm-hmm. from the mm-hmm. Eagles, and his wife, the Eagles were playing at it, and uh, his wife, I think, was the LA chairman and chairwoman of, of uh, the Lupus Foundation, and Snoop was there because. I think Snoop's wife or somebody in Snoop's family has has lupus, so Snoop got up to um, do a welcome spiel and introduce <laughs> the Eagles. Yeah, and it was just classic because he just got up and he he was, I would say, substantially uh, in a state of altered consciousness. <laughs> yeah, probably from meditation to- or something like that. You know, <laughs> he's probably doing yoga backstage. But then he went, ladies and gentlemen. My favorite band, the motherfucking Eagles. <laughs> <laughs> That's so great. That's so great. It was, it was a good one. You know what? That'd be a good name for an Eagles cover band, the motherfucking Eagles. Motherfucking Eagles, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> That's pretty good. Are we talking about anything particular? Not really, no. I thought we could catch up a little bit, and then if you wanted, we can get into some theology slash philosophy related stuff and i'm sure brian probably has a, a few i might have some probing questions some probing questions why not okay 
if that's cool with you. Yeah, yeah, totally. It's fine. totally fine, mate. Ask away. Cool. So you've been pretty busy recently, huh? Um. Yeah. I mean, you had Spark, and then you had the European Radical Theology Network. Yeah. So, you know, I I, I moved back here two years ago, and um, and I I mean I I've always sort of come backwards and forwards to Europe anyway, but since I was back here, I just sort of been taking stock of, of a lot of things. And it just occurred to me that um, much of the the landscape, the, the sort of Christian landscape, is dominated by a sort of Americanization of everything, you know, mm-hmm. so the, you know, the both in the forms of church, but I was thinking particularly about um, like radical theology and, and stuff and, and how essentially its principal location is America. I mean, there, there are, are non you know north american radical theologians but that's the sort of locus of where everything goes on and um the the questions that concern americans kind of dominate the landscape and uh so i mentioned to a friend of mine um swedish joseph gustafsson i don't know if you know him he does a catacomic podcast or he started that anyway um, i said to him i'm 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 gonna start this thing called the rad the european radical theology network and uh and he said well what's that and i said well right now it's just a name <laughs> but um i i just want to see if there's interest in creating um a different conversation about radical theology taking into account the the various European situations and not allowing the kind of question like generic questions to dominate that thing. So we just had our first kind of inaugural gathering in, uh, Holland in the Netherlands last week. And, uh, it, it was really good actually. I was, uh, cause you know, I mean, you never know if anybody's going to be really interested, but there was, there was quite a lot of enthusiasm and uh, a readiness to, to sort of engage. So we kind of did this like a long afternoon, evening get together and came away with a, a kind of operating umbrella statement. And uh, we're going to work on a couple of other gatherings and, and start to get people um, moving kind of locally in the, in their different context and seeing what comes up from it. So, um, awesome. Are you at liberty to disclose what that umbrella statement is? Uh, yeah. So um, we, we wanted to have something that was a, a big enough umbrella without being too – like so a lot of people could live under it because, you know, I, I think radical theology, like most most things, is, is – uh, a name under which a lot of different things live. So the, we, we came up with this sentence, and, and the, the sentence is, radical theology um, is an embrace of the deadlock in reality, an openness to novelty, and an affirmation of the lack at the heart of human existence. Mm-hmm. So, um, and, and that was kind of a way of talking about so we picked novelty because I, I think novelty is a much more interesting word than progressive. I, I think like the whole notion of progressive Christianity is, is kind of progressive. Progression is a modern, a modern term. It, it's tied into progress and stuff like that. And um, novelty is a postmodern in, 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 well, no, 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 yeah, it's like, you know, the crackers in the crackerjack box. No, <laughs> novelty is a sort of philosophical um, notion of um, something new that, that erupts. So progress is moving along a continuum. So, you know, you see a lot of people, or my take on it is what progressive means to most people is they're not as uptight as they used to be about certain things. Mm. And uh, novelty is actually you're working to allow space for something new to emerge that's not on the same continuum because yeah. i think i think that continuum is a, is a tired tired continuum yeah and yeah. you just kind of wind up pink i mean it's 
I think we talked about this before, and it's not, uh, and it's not, uh, it's not even a judgment as much as an observation. But people make kind of, they they sort of come to the end of uh, a particular way of living. Usually, the 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 grid that they've operated on bumps up against something that they can no longer live with, mm. and so they 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 want to um, find more room. So they usually move sideways and become low. So evangelicals become Episcopalians. Mm-hmm. You know, they move, move, they move more towards the liberal. But it's still on the same continuum. Mm. They're still actually talking about all the same things. Yeah. Uh, the ideological structure is still the same. It's just got more room for, for, for some other stuff around it. Mm. My interest is actually in getting off that continuum all the way around because yeah. I think – one of the ideas. Sorry, am I talking too much? No, not at all, Barry. For it. One one of the one of the ideas that I've really been giving serious thought to over the last year or so is the difference between um, liberation and liberalization. And I think a lot of people misinterpret liberalization as liberation okay. because liberalization is making more room. But liberation is freedom from. Mm. And I think there's a, a, a kind of distinction. A novelty goes with that kind of liberation. Yeah. So we wanted to sort of make a statement that that um, we we're not on the progressive continuum. That it's 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 working towards novelty in in the European context and the deadlock. You know that sort of. I mean that's a bigger conversation but that has to do with a lot of stuff from the social to the economic to the political so all those systems in society around which we seem to have hit this kind of deadlock grid in life uh, uh, at the moment and we spend all of our time kind of scapegoating other people you know so it's their fault and everybody winds up um even if you're in the right sort of coming off as wrong you know what i mean because your your attitude is and then you know lack i mean obviously that's a very lacanian philosophical idea you know that the the essence of human existence is the acknowledgement of the lack but but really it it, it's for for us it it was more um it was that but it was also um a, a kind of statement against the positivism that lurks around the edges of Christianity, we have to make everything right all the time and fix things. So that was the sort of umbrella sentence that, that we kind of decided is obviously ideological on some levels, but it's a space for, a, there's room under that for a lot of discussion and a lot of different um, ideas. So we, we sort of worked on it together as a group and decided that at least for now, that's going to be our initial kind of starting point. And, uh, and the goal is to sort of kind of get people, um, not only thinking about things, but, um, performing, you know, like Mm. creating communities or get togethers or whatever in some form that kind of address these things from those perspectives, whatever that might look like. And with a particular emphasis on, um, the, uh, the contexts in which people live because mm-hmm. my, my real interest, I mean, I'm interested in theology, um, but I'm also interested in, in the world in which theology is trying to survive. And I think that's a very, very important part of the conversation that, that needs to be incorporated to sort of pay attention to, to what's going on in, in reality, in, in, in the world and let that sort of interrogate, your theological responses as well. Like, does it actually address the real world mm. or is it just some abstract idea? Oh yeah. Which is the that's, that's well something like, it's a danger with something like radical theology, which has lived in the academy pretty much for all of his existence is that it can be really theoretical. So mm. we're sort of also looking for artists and, and, and other people as well to sort of support this in kind of non-linear and less abstract and theoretical ways. Yeah. So I've been, do- been doing a bit of that. 
so a bit is, of that. <laughs> is your goal for the ERTN, if I'm using that acronym right, ERTN, is to yeah. what you said to take it from the theoretical and academic, academic, because like you said, it's solely kind of in the academic world now to bring it into the kind of reality by using other theologians, artists, philosophers yeah. to kind of bring it into the more mainstream. Is that your goal for you and the others who are part of it? Yeah, I, I don't know. I don't, I don't know about mainstream, but I mean, I've always in 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 my own sort of life, I, I've been involved in academics, but I've also always been involved in some kind of embedded get together. I can't, you know, it used to be church. I don't think it ended up as church, but mm-hmm. in some kind of environment or community where there was the potential to actually. Uh, live live these things mm-hmm. so mm-hmm. um because you know i mean i'm interested in theoretical ideas but at the end of the day it's just fucking talk yeah sure and 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 and, and it's great i mean it's what we do but but if you don't find a way to sort of land it in the real world um in, in a way that it actually might have opportunity to impact somebody's existence then it's just a bunch of just a bunch of air with sounds, you know? Mm-hmm. So, yeah. So the goal is really to, uh, and you know, there, I mean, there, there are people already trying to, you know, on the ground, trying to work some of this stuff out. And then there are other people that want to sort of start to begin to do things. And, and it's always, you know, it's, it's dangerous because the, the church model looms large in everybody's kind of imagination because a lot of people, come from those church environments. So, you know, starting churches is still like a, a kind of fallback and default move. Um, and that's fine, but uh, there, there are other ways of, of, of getting people together and doing stuff like that. So that'll, you know, and we'll, we'll see. And it's going gonna, it's gonna to have a lot to do. I mean, the difference in Europe is there's not really um, – uh, a solid or as a, as an expansive uh, Christian subculture and or underground. I mean, if you take the European nations, church attendance is below 5% in all of them, I think. Mm-hmm. So, you know, so religion, organized religion plays virtually zero, zero in, in most people's lives. So it's very different than America where you have a lot of people who still can trace their way back to religion fairly quickly. And even if they haven't, they're, they're much more aware of it because it's in the cultural ether in a different way. Mm. In Europe, you have a lot of state churches. So the church is around, but it's not looked at as anything that sort of generally speaks to people's lives. So it's a very different situation um, on one level that it, it makes doing things different easier because you're not dealing with the tyranny of, you know, successful mega churches everywhere. Although, you know, <laughs> I mean, the interesting thing, the, the interesting thing of course, is that, um, in, uh, a lot of European cities, you're starting to see, um, the rise of the kind of neoconservative sort of Hillsong type churches, yeah. you know, because I, I, I think, there's a resurgence of a hunger for um, certainty in people's lives because everything is so up in the air and there's so much anxiety and the veneer of um, progress, huh. you know, and yeah. the, the hip, the hipster factor. And I don't mean that again, I don't mean that disparagingly that, that, that works for, for some people. It's just not, you know, I just don't think it has, it's not the future that I'm looking to, to be involved in. Yeah. Because it's, it's, you know, it's just repetitive mm-hmm. the language. And I, I think I might've told you before I, I went Pete, when Pete first, Pete Rollins first moved to um, LA, we went to this uh, hipster mega church the first night he was in town. He wanted to go there to check it out. Not quite sure why, but, um, <laughs> uh, but you know, what. Well, you know, we do, but, um, we, we, we went to this church and this guy got up and, you know, it was all, it was all very cool, you know, lasers and smoke. And they, I mean, they did it really well, you know, 
Um, but this guy got up and he was like, yeah, I was last week I was in the mountains seeking the Lord, but you know, I was still in contact with people and people were tweeting me and somebody said, Hey pastor, Johnny Depp was in the house this week. And then, um, and he said, you know, that's cool, but you know what church, someone more famous than Johnny Depp is in the church. Don't say it. (laughs) And his name is Jesus. And everybody went absolutely apeshit. And P and I left. And, and, and to me, it was like, well, yeah, um, I'm not surprised by that statement. But what's really interesting to me is that it's um, the same language game. Mm-hmm. Like you could, that, that could have been in 1980. It could have been in 1990. Could have been in 2000. It could have been 2010. And, um, Jimmy Stewart was in the house tonight, but you know, someone else more famous was here. (laughs) Crosby. Yeah. 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 This really interesting. Um, I read this really interesting book by this, uh, Russian writer, um, Alexei Yerchak. It's called, um, everything forever. Everything was forever until it was no more. Mm. And it's a book about the, the kind of last generation of, um, communists in Russia before, before the, um, before um, the Soviet Union collapsed and imploded. And it's a really interesting um, book about about that time period and uh, the reasons for the implosion. And one of the things that he, he talks about as problematic is, is what he calls um, the hyper-normalization of rhetoric. Yeah. And, and uh, his, his whole thing is that... Um, People were so afraid of getting things wrong mm-hmm. that they all started to say the same things, mm. and uh, and eventually all the words became ultimately meaningless. Yeah, and everything. So it didn't matter who spoke, whoever spoke, they basically said what everybody else was saying because they were a they were afraid of um, because all the speeches were vetted by. People, you know, there's like all these people watching it and so, oh, you can't say that. You can't say that. If you say that, you're going to get in trouble. You know, labor camps calling you if you say you say all this. And so he talks a lot about about the 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 hyper normalization of rhetoric. And I think that's what for me is one of the it's one of my personal stumbling blocks with a lot of Christianity that I encounter is that people just, you just keep hearing the same things over and over and yeah. over again. And it's not because those things are necessarily the truth. It's just nobody's doing any fucking independent thinking. Mm. Nobody's actually sitting down and, and going, or it doesn't seem that they are. Or if they are, they're resorting to the same language game, which nullifies any newness they have to say. Yeah, that's really interesting. I feel like that's that is an observation that a lot of people are having, and that is a frustration that is that, that you can kind of taste the flavor of in a lot of different uh, communities, a lot of different applications right now. Yeah. And I think too that I, I know that for me personally, I'm not only initially have ha- started becoming exhausted with the dialogue and, and even the inner monologue around. Um, you know, right or wrong, or the existence or the non-existence of a deity. You know, or the um, these these kind of polarizing questions that that do you know have rhetoric that are built in around them. But then uh, yeah. also maybe even um, I, I, I feel myself and see others maybe starting to become exhausted with that with those paradigms altogether, and and then and then maybe you move into something more radical or or, or more nuanced. Um, or yeah. more, or more, um, what was the word you used instead of progressive, Barry? Novelty. Novelty. Yeah. Things that are more, that are more novelty. They're more new, more Nova, I guess. Yeah. I think, it, I think, uh, I think novelty comes from Wittgenstein, maybe somebody, Schopenhauer, I forget who. Okay. Some philosopher. Yeah. You know, blah, blah. But but yeah, I, I think that. But then I, I think you were also maybe kind of making this observation too that that once you move 
past certain paradigms or once you become tired with certain paradigms and, and move into a new way of thinking about things, that there can be a danger in, in, in not finding the pragmatic application of this new way of thinking. And then you're just kind of sitting around on your ass and just debating about theoretical things. And then it's like, well, where's, where, where does the rubber meet the road? Yeah. I mean, I mean, I, obviously not everybody feels compelled to like start things and stuff like that, but, but I do think, I mean, and we all walk around with opinions about everything all day long, you know, in our heads, you know, and, and they don't all get grounded and embedded. But I think when it comes to the theological, um, there, there's a sense in which, to me, there's a sort of logic behind the theological enterprise that sort of should lead in some way to some kind of performance of that theology in yeah. in real time, in in real existence. And to go back to that language thing, um, I, I, I think, again, part of the, the goal of um, looking at something like novelty is one of the, one of the, one of the things that happens a lot is you, you find yourself or one finds oneself constantly engaged in defending positions against other positions and in yeah. arguments and in arguments and conversations about things that you're no longer really interested in. Yeah. And um I think the way you resolve that is by finding new things to talk about. Yeah. Mm. And and talking about other things in new ways mm. so that the old questions are disempowered. Yeah, that's a, that's a really good Good way to put that. That's a that's a good way to I handle it. I think approach it. I think. I mean. I and, and actually, I'm going to say that that um, I I think Jesus would probably be a really good uh, um, a really good uh, example of that. In that, on two levels, because one when he was sort of confronted by the let's just say the upholders of the law, the theologians of the day, you know, Pharisees, Sadducees priests or whomever they are and they would ask him questions their questions were hyper normalized rhetoric of, uh, of the period you mm-hmm. know and and, and uh, he always responded by asking a question that interrogated their assumptions and their questions and uh, their his question disempowered their preconceived answers mm. they couldn't give the same answers anymore because the the uh, the way he asked that question implied that their their because you know their questions are always loaded their questions you know it's like people that ask you a question but it's not really a question it's a <laughs> statement you know uh, like sure. over here in England people uh, over here in England people a lot they say in I, I hear it in in interviews all the time they go don't you think and then they go blah 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 <laughs> yeah. and basically you that you should really think what they're thinking mm-hmm. I, I I think that. Uh, that's sort of what you get when you read those encounters in, in, in the Gospels, you know. They they kind of basically say to him, don't you think, you know, that this is my neighbor, blah, 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 blah. Mm. And then he goes, yeah, well, let me tell you this story. And uh, and then they're always amazed, and that's either a positive or a negative, because basically they don't know what to say. Hmm. So the way to to, like, change your conversation dialogue is to start talking about different things yeah can i pick your brain on something barry uh you sure if you can <laughs> can <laughs> you i attempt try to? Them. there might not be much to plug. <laughs> uh don't you think that i should pick your brain on something barry oh why don't you yes of course <laughs> um just thinking that yeah weren't you i could tell yeah right answer um so this is this is something that that I've been chewing on recently, a new kind of goal that I have, something that I think is is within grasp enough to be a, a, a productive goal to work towards, is building a talk, you know, or a sermon, quote unquote, that I can give in an evangelical environment where I can non-aggressively pose the question, okay, w- pose a question without making any sort of assertion, without asserting that there is no afterlife, without asserting a sense of a, you know, a materialistic reality, but just pose the question, where does it get us at us as Christians? And maybe, you know, maybe I could try to adopt 
or, or I could try to uh, use some Christianese terminology and things like that and, and, and ask the question, how is it more productive for us Christians? You know, again, using some terminology there. Um, but how is it productive for us to approach interacting with our fellow humans under the presumption that the most important goal in those interactions is focused on the afterlife? So not saying there is no afterlife, but saying, well, what if we just set that to the side? Like, can't we, can't we just, I don't, now you got me thinking like now maybe I'm saying, don't you think that we should just, but can't we just maybe focus on washing each other's feet or on, on feeding each other or on, you know, so, so maybe trying to build a bridge between the humanist and the evangelical, you know, in, in which I know that evangelicalism is very much an American tradition, but that's the atmosphere that I'm in right now. But asking, you know, is it, trying to find a productive way to have a conversation with that group of people um, that bred me, you know, from, uh, the cloth from which I'm cut, honestly, um, about, you know, c- maybe we can work together to build a, a, a heaven here on earth, you know, work together towards practicing these ideals of Christ, these teachings of Christ, without this obsession with, uh, you know, apologetics and things like that that are surrounding the end goal of, you know, saving souls, or, or which, which honestly, the idea of saving souls is really a, a selfish endeavor because you're really just trying to save your own soul or to, to prove to a deity that you are on yeah. that deity's side, I guess, or on that team. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it, it's, yeah, by the, by the way, they have evangelicals in Britain. Yeah, in I know Europe. they do, but it's not, it's, I don't think it's as prominent though, is it? Well, it's not as prominent because religion is not as prominent. But really, I would say that um, the, the similarly to the to the U.S., the successful churches tend to be the conservative okay. evangelical. Do you think is the ratio um, in Europe or specifically in Britain? Do you think the ratio of uh, evangelical to to other types of Christianity, other flavors of Christianity, is the same, even though the number might be smaller? Uh, you know, I, I I'm not really sure about that. Um, I, I, I don't know because, you know, and it's hard to work out because, you know, you always get when you get statistics and facts and figures here, it's always sort of filtered through the Church of England. Sure. And, you know, there are lots of evangelicals in the Church of England. So there's a big evangelical wing mm-hmm. of the Church of England, you know, mm-hmm. but but to go back to your your comments, I mean, the big tyranny for me in 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 modern Christianity is the the kind of looming tyranny of the afterlife as the central purpose and quest of yeah. Christianity. It is tyrannical. And, uh, yeah, I, I, it is a tyranny um, because it, it it imposes itself or it's imposed um, as the dominant dynamic through which most things get get filtered, um, and it's very hard to overcome because. I, I, I found that it's very difficult to persuade. To, you can't change somebody's mind. They have to want to change. Mm-hmm. They have to want to change mm-hmm. their way of thinking. They have to arrive at a place where they want to change. Yeah. They, and they have to come to a point in their life yeah. through some mechanism mm-hmm. um, that makes them, aw- and it can be awareness of information, it can be crisis, it can be any, you know, any. Mm-hmm. Anything can can bring you there, but but the the realization that you need uh, a different response or a different position or, or a different thing, um, it's very hard to give people to that. You can sort of lead them up to it, I think, a yeah. little bit, but even then, you know, it's it's like um, it's a guessing game as to whether or not you can get that far. But I but I and and of course. You, you have the strange dynamic that if you sort of said, you know, well, you know, God wants us to be involved in, in life and helping people, they go, oh, of course. And, you know, they immediately start talking about social justice or projects for the poor and stuff like that. But it's usually in, in the service of, you know, the, the larger goal of saving, saving souls, yeah. you know. So um, it, it's, it's complex. And, and I, sometimes I wonder if it's not better just to uh, talk about things, and this comes back to the whole idea of talking about things in such a way 
that you nullify the conversation about the afterlife, yeah. at least in your own particular scenario and, and, and circumstance, mm-hmm. you know, and, and again, we're talking in generalities like an audience, but in an audience, yeah. there's going to be any number of opinions about, about that stuff, but it's definitely worth, uh, pursuing and seeing what yeah. happens. And you won't know until you actually start to try and talk to people and see where, see where that gets you. Mm-hmm. How do you think that situationist Jesus Almost a little bit of a plug there for you, Barry. Thank you very much. Uh-huh. <laughs> How do you think that 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 Jesus, you know, this that this character would nullify a question posed by the Pharisees that is, well, well, um, you know, don't you think, or wouldn't you say that the most important thing as a Christian is saving souls? How does how does that that iteration of Christ nullify that question? Do you think? Yeah. Well, you know, I mean. Were you to go back to the Bible and read the Gospel of Mark in its first finished form, where it doesn't have the little tag on at the end about, yeah. you know, going off and doing all that stuff, mm-hmm. and you're just left with an empty tomb, mm-hmm. um, you kind of have your answer there. That um, Because, you know, saving souls um, is a very interesting dynamic that I think has a shorter history than than we tend to to think it, you know, to think it has. Um, but uh, yeah, I mean, there, you know, Jesus uses that language, but he's also a person of his time. Sure. Um, and, uh, I mean, that brings up whole issues of how you, how you process things like the divinity versus the humanity of Christ and whether or not those things are, are, are important for you. Or not, but again, I I think that those questions get very little attention from Jesus, yeah. really. You, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Yeah, sure. I mean, they're, they're, and they're usually couched in stories about the value of, um, you know, so you can go, well, you know, don't store up for yourself treasures on earth um, because tonight your soul is re- might be required of you. Well, that's not a statement. Uh, of the priority of the soul over um, material things. It's actually a statement of the priority of the soul over the pursuit of material wealth to the point of excess, which in, I think, first century Palestine probably hinted, as it does in the 21st century, at the exploitation of others, because nobody gets rich by themselves. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Yeah, sure. That's the big You're not a billionaire. By, because you uh, you um, are, are a self motivating person, <laughs> um, you're a billionaire because you um, are actually using a lot of other people to make your money. Mm-hmm. I think um, so. I, I find the 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 context of um, how a story is told, you know, because we take everything and gather it all up together and then make a case for it. You know, you know what I mean? And we, it's like, well, heaven is mentioned 75 times in, you know, whatever, you know, mm-hmm. the statistics, you know, and it's like, well, okay, but that actually doesn't mean anything because it's mentioned 75 times, but in what context is it mentioned 75 times? Mm. And it, is it all the same? And is it analogy? Is it, you know, is it symbolic? It's like, you know, in the gospel of Mark, you, you have, Jesus does three things. He teaches, he performs exorcisms, and he heals. And it happens in cycles of three all the way through the book. I'm going to go out on a limb and say I think there's an awful lot of symbolism in that, and that maybe those exorcisms and healings and teachings are actually all uh, designed to accomplish uh, a particular thing, which is to craft and create a particular way of looking at the world. Whether or not those miracles or those exorcisms are real is a byproduct of modern discourse. Yeah, of course. Um, the point isn't whether they happened or didn't happen. Mm-hmm. That's actually not the point at all. The point is they're telling you something other. So um, I think situationist Jesus would have a lot to say about all of this stuff, yeah. actually. And, you know, as you know, situationist Jesus, you can put any kind of words in his mouth. <laughs> yeah. And, and, um, apparently quoted all from the same passage of scripture too. <laughs> what is it? Galatians, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. For something. I don't remember what it is, but yeah, whatever it is. Yeah. 
Barry, Shut up. Barry, why do, you, <laughs> why do you think so many Christians, maybe predominantly evangelicals, and I was like Caleb grew, uh, grew up evangelical in, in, in America. Why do you think so many people buy into all of it? Because I mean, I just look at it as escapism. While so many people um, believe they believe in the teachings of Jesus, but I feel like they believe in the teachings of Jesus and adhere to Christianity um, yeah. because they don't want to go to quote unquote this afterlife. They don't want to go to hell. They want to go to heaven. But it, to me, if you kind of like chisel it down to me it's just escapism why they want to escape um getting out of the here and now and getting out of of potentially get out of hell free card maybe just i don't know real quick just why do you think that so many i don't know christians especially evangelicals um view it that way and i mean i just look at it as escapism i don't know if you two think of that well i mean uh, that, I mean, that was that was Freud's big critique of religion that that you know that it was not only an illusion, but it was a fantasy. And the problem with it was not that religion offers people uh, an escape from from the hardship of their life, but they live in that fantasy to the point where they dismiss life in the real world. I mean, that's his mm-hmm. big. Uh, I, I think that's the critique of religion that you get from Freud about illusion and, and stuff like that. Um, and I think a lot of things about it because, you know, I, I started off in, in that world too. And, and on some level it's, it's the form of Christian piety that shapes and has given shape to Western interpretation of Christianity. I mean, that's the way the story has been broken down for us in our time. And so when people embrace it at first, they don't embrace it. I don't think we, I, I, I don't think initially people embrace it as uh, um, necessarily a, a, an, an illusion or, or, or exactly a form of escape as much of a, as a new understanding of the nature of reality. Mm-hmm. But the problem is that um, it starts to become a, uh, a means and a form of escape from dealing with reality because you start to live inside this bubble mm. where everything is explained for you and you don't have to think for yourself. In fact, thinking for yourself is the worst thing that you can do. I, I mean, I think to some degree churches exist to stop people thinking from themselves. Mm-hmm. I don't think that's the role of them, but that seems to have been what's happened. And we've developed a culture where people want other people to do their thinking for them. So that plays uh, a role in it. And, and also, you, you sort of come in and, and you know, I mean, I don't, I don't know what your story is, but when, when I sort of got in, first got involved in churches, you come in and you're given a sort of ready-made schema of how it all goes and you're told what's important and you sort of embrace that without critical reflection to begin with, you know, oh, you're a sinner, you need, you need a savior. Um, uh, you know, the most important thing in your life is your soul. You know, you need to memorize the, you know, whatever the list is. Right. And you do that. And I think you embrace it with, um, wholeheartedness and integrity and a desire to address your own felt needs for, for meaning, um, and for, um, understanding uh, about the nature of reality, mm-hmm. uh, you know, on a sort of deeply existential way. Um, the problem is, is that the way I think much of Christianity attempts to explain uh, the nature of reality is that it becomes a sort of um, control mechanism that wants to eradicate the one constant in life, which is randomness. Life is filled with uncertainty un- and unpredictability. And a lot of Christianity, which I think is part of its appeal, is that it gives you a veneer of certainty. Mm-hmm. It, 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 in a sense, it's attempting to manage what's unmanageable in life. Because, you know, you don't know from one day to the next what's going to happen. Right. But you're told, oh, well, and, and when, when shit does happen that doesn't fit in the grid, we've got an answer for that as well. You know, so um, God's teaching you a lesson or 
God wanted God wanted them God wanted them home more than leaving them with you. You know, and I mean all these explanations that maintain the hierarchy and the integrity of um, God um, at the expense of humanity. And uh, I, I think a lot of people sort of get caught up in the thrill of that, the thrill and the power that comes with thinking that you actually have a handle on what's coming. Because the hardest thing in life is to learn to live with randomness. Mm-hmm. I think that's actually the goal of Christianity, mm-hmm. <laughs> is, is to not eradicate randomness, but to help people find ways to live with the uncertainty and the unpredictability of existence by not inserting false meanings uh, to life. Right. So that's a lot of process. And I think a lot of people, particularly in times like ours, where there's a lot, everybody, you know, I mean, we live in a gig economy, zero hour contracts, uh, no stability, no security. Most people, um, probably going to have to work way past retirement date, probably don't have savings, uh, making it month to month, all of these things, you know, the, the uncertainty of, you know, the rise of populism and nationalism, um, just the, the, the angst that people feel, um, when you, you know, one of the ways that you can medicate that is, is through the promise of, of certainty and stuff like that. And, and you don't realize that it's, a, I, I don't think we realize it's a form of medication, really. I mean, it's very interesting, you know, that we always quote, or people always quote Karl Marx when they're attacking Christianity, you know, religion is the opiate of the masses. What we forget about that is that when Marx was talking about that, opium was called the poor people's aspirin. It was the only medication that you could get for everything. Hmm. It was the, it was the cheap medicine that was, he wasn't actually completely critiquing uh, religion. He was actually saying religion functions like opium. It covers a whole bunch of stuff, but it covers a whole bunch of stuff. But the crisis that it's covering is not being addressed. That's really the the root of religion as the opiate of uh, of the the masses, you know. And when religion gets handed out like a a pill, and it doesn't address, it's like it, 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 this is my beef with the whole well being movement. You know, people people you know well being, you know mindfulness and, and all that stuff. I'm not against those things. But I'm against them in the service of the system. So, you know, you give people, you know, people go, it's like people tell me, oh, I need to go on a, like a, a tech fast. You know, yeah. I need to get, I need to get off Facebook for a month or I'm going to, I'm going to fast Instagram for Lent. Or, <laughs> or, or, and I'm like, well, okay. But if you go back to Instagram the day after Lent ends, and you operate with it the same way, then you just wasted a month of Instagram time. Mm-hmm. You actually mm-hmm. haven't transformed your, you know, it's like, it's right. like this, the problem with diets, you know, you, you, you know, if you're on a diet and you go, I'm, I'm going to fast for 30 days and in your mind, you're like, and the day after I'm going straight to McDonald's, <laughs> there's no point. There's no point in that diet. You have to change the way you think about food. Right. Right. So it's the same with, it's the same with religion. it's like, what is the goal of religion? We presume that the goal of religion is to provide meaning, comfort, and security. It's interesting to me that when the children of Israel, for instance, I'm getting very biblical tonight. When the children, (laughs) must be because it's late. When the children (laughs) of Israel left uh, to go wander in the wilderness, you know, what they wanted was they wanted to go back to Egypt and they wanted to go back to Egypt, and they wanted to go back to the comfort of the bread and onions they got there, and they forgot about the bricks. Amazingly, about <laughs> <laughs> slavery, they just remembered the food, and um, and God didn't want them to go back into comfort. He wanted them actually to go into the wilderness, and they lived in the wilderness. Um, and uh, I think there's a, a, a lesson there that the direction of uh, at least 
maybe they're Jewish. I'm not Jewish, so I can't really speak to that. But at least Judeo-Christian interpretations of the Old Testament and then Christian interpretations of the New is that we're invited to go and live in the randomness of existence without the promise of cohesive meaning. Mm. Yeah, yes. I, and I think that yeah, yeah, no, I agree fully, and I think that's one of the reasons I left evangelicalism because you had said you like just a quick tidbit about me. Like I grew up Assemblies of God, Pentecostal, um, good old evangelical, and now I'm UCC, um, which yeah. is progressive, which has its issues and and, and things like that, but. So many of my family are still evangelical, and when I have conversations with them, it is that um, certainty. It's that they don't look at it as escapism. They're like, for instance, like my father passed away like 14, 15 years ago, and I remember saying to like my mom, my you know, my brother, they were like, oh, you know, our dad or my husband's in heaven and da-da-da-da. And I was like, well, how do we know that? Like, just wasn't trying to be a dick, but was just like, how do we know that my father is in heaven like why are these these certainties like Mm -hmm. there's a lot more in life that's random that we don't know and i feel like not all of the church are not all christians but we 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 push this like these certainties and i i I like that the book uh by pete ends wrote the sin of certainty where when we look at things of so certain that we know as christians or we know as believers whatever you want to say that there's this certainty aspect, I have to, in my head, de- like deconstruct that because I'm like, life is chance, life is random, life is, you know, a-, a shot in the dark. And I feel like if more people, especially Christians, understood that, that life is random, that there, there might not be this quote-unquote ultimate meaning of why these things happen. I feel like so many times Christians are like, oh, well, if I'm a Christian, God's not going to let this a b or c or d thing happen to me but when we have to we have to look to it and realize that's not true like shitty things are going to happen to good people and bad people and life is just going to happen to everyone but i feel like there's that certainty that goes with a lot of christianity where like if i believe in this quote-unquote deity these bad things aren't going to happen to Mm -hmm. me and i think that's just we have to get away from that Mm -hmm. yeah i mean i i think i mean i i do think that it's uh, a cult it's a human desire to overcome like i mean the, we all know we all know that we're going to die mm-hmm. but we all know we're going to die fuck <laughs> so what are we going to do about that and i i think the tendency is that we want to overcome finitude with mm. uh something that compensates right. so and, and you know in in the western christian tradition uh that that's the the development of you know life after death and uh you know constructs of heaven and things like that which are you know very uh, i mean not they're developmental in the bible i mean you know you have a hard time finding i mean there's paradise in the Old Testament. It's not heaven. And, you know, the early church believed that paradise was on earth, a place on earth. Um, right. So, um, heaven is a place on earth. Yeah, yeah, see, they got it right. Um, so, I, I, yeah, it's it's an interesting... So my point is, you know, it's not just Christians necessarily that, that want the comfort of certainty. Right. I mean... True. It's in everything, you know, it's astrology, it's um, Mm -hmm. whatever. It's, I mean, it's a human tendency is to want to handle the existential crisis of human finitude Mm -hmm. with something. Mm -hmm. And that seems to be um, the certainty, (laughs) abstract certainty about things that you can't be certain about at all. Because any concept of the afterlife, is a guessing game because as far as I know, nobody, nobody has come back. I mean, or if they do, they usually live in a trailer park, which is always <laughs> a work. But you know, um, but essentially, we have we have no we have no proof or evidence that 
such a thing exists, you know. Um, but the soul, the soul is a concept. It's just an idea. And, uh, it, you know, I mean, and I don't, I don't think, I mean, I believe in the soul. You know, I believe in Otis Redding. I mean, I believe in soul music, you know, and I believe in, in, in the soul of humanity. But in, in terms of uh, do I have a soul? I, I, I don't I don't know. Uh, I, I don't even know what that is. I think it's an idea. Like I remember once a lot years ago hearing this guy get into this really convoluted conversation because, you know, you have these things again in, in the New Testament. And, you know, it's like Paul goes like, I pray that God will strengthen you, you know, your whole spirit, soul, and body, so that your spirit and God's spirit. And this guy suddenly starts talking about the fact that we've got a body, we've got a soul, we've got a spirit, and we've got God's spirit at least in us. And all of a sudden, now it's like, I'm not three bits, I'm four bits. You know <laughs> what I mean? And it's like, and trying to like, so what's the difference between the spirit and the soul in a, in a, in a human being? Are they interchangeable? Um, do they mean something different? Mm-hmm. So if I've got a spirit and I've got a soul, when I die, is it the spirit that goes on into the afterlife or is it the soul that goes on into the mm-hmm. afterlife? Um, or, or are they both one and the same? And if so, why didn't he use the same word all the time? You know what right, I mean? Right, and he didn't. Yeah. So that would lead you to believe that there's a nuance there. Um, the problem is, is we like make that a concrete thing. And now we've got to like work out what each one means when maybe it's a, a, a notion and a way of talking about something. I mean, I think one of the more interesting dynamics in the 21st century is the decentering of the self mm-hmm. and, and the loss of the stability of the self. And um, one of the sort of classic you know, Greek ideas is the dualism of the body and soul. And that's existed within Christianity forever. And, and I think that's sort of run its course, not in a like Richard Raw kind of <laughs> Richard Rorian way. So mm-hmm. necessarily I'm not disagreeing with him, but I, I you know, the, 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 that, that idea, because I think we live now with an awareness that, that the self is is fluid and in a continual state of flux and it's not fixed. And, um, you know, we, we talk more about consciousness and stuff now, you know, which people seem to think they can upload onto a server. <laughs> and, and again, which is really interesting because, you know, you've got the whole like singularity movement, you know, where, you know, the, the robots are going to take over, but you've also got people like, you know, Ray Kurzweil who wants to upload his consciousness onto a, um, basically onto a hard drive and, and live forever. Well, that's no, not really very different than uh, the Christian notion of the soul. Absolutely. That, that yeah. you, you know what I mean? It's like, so the sum total of, 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 of being human is your consciousness. Well, I, I don't agree because I think consciousness is attached to physicality. Mm-hmm. And I think they they go hand in hand. And if I understand the nature of death, when the body shuts down, you're fucked in the brain too. <laughs> yeah. And I, and I have a feeling that your consciousness goes right out of the window too. I think the light goes off. Mm-hmm. You know. And um, and and I, I I don't know what I'm saying. <laughs> if someone offered you Barry a a free, you know, free of charge upload of your consciousness to some sort of a digital cloud would you would you say oh no fuck that or would you take take the take the plunge try it out you, you fuck it like what harm is it going to do no no I, robo I berry that. robo berry 5000 no i want hands and legs and physicality yeah I, I, I robot like legs maybe i don't know i could hook you up with some sort of a... <laughs> I, I mean i guess i could be a robot That'd be cool. i mean i i really it's really interesting to me i really do think that um did you ever see? Did you see that Spike Jones movie, Her? Yeah. Mm-hmm. I, th- that the the longer time goes on, the more profound and important I think that film is in terms of um, sort of understanding some of the present moment with like technology and what's going on. But the 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 technological world and the theological world um, uh, they they they're kind of informing each other at the moment. I think, and, and they're both kind of apocalyptic views of reality. Um, apocalyptic in the kind of tragic worldview kind of way, mm-hmm. where um, you know it's the the apocalypse of. Um, if I, oh, that was the, my the talk I gave at our first 
um, radical theology gathering was called the apocalypse will blossom, which is about a different, a different kind of apocalyptic. It's from a, a an artwork by Jenny Holzer, but, um, you know, an apocalypse that's not nihilistic or fatalistic, but actually an apocalypse that reveals the novelty of another way of being in the world. Mm. Blah, blah, blah. <laughs> <laughs> hey, Barry, I thought the last time we talked, we said that we were going to spend our whole next pod- podcast talking about shoes. What happened there? We really dropped nah, the ball there, buddy. You, uh, you, actually, I think you dropped the shoe because yeah. you never called me back. You're so, um, right. We could have picked that up. I mean, I'm, I'm always happy to talk shoes. You know that. You're the podcast master. I'm just, you know, <laughs> your humble. <son>. Oh, are you? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, but we can. Yeah, we can talk about you know why you should never wear flip flops where there isn't sand. <laughs> yeah, that's a good one. <laughs> yeah, we can talk about why square show <laughs> square toed shoes. <laughs> are a sign of a lack of ambition. <laughs> <laughs> that would be interesting. Almost like a like a psychological analysis of, of the different the implications of different types of footwear. The only people that wear square toed shoes are people that never wear suits and only wear shoes when they get invited to weddings. <laughs> <laughs> what what do what do uh, slip on shoes say about a person who what, what about a person who wears slip ons only exclusively? You mean like loafers? Yeah, sure. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, lazy as fuck. Yeah, yeah. that was a softball I tossed you there. Get some, la- get some laces. <laughs> get Damn some it, laces. I'm, we- I'm wearing. Sh- on sh- oh no, Brian's wearing loafers. Sorry. There's a place. For, there's a place for the loafer, but it's not everywhere. It's not your feet. I thought you were gonna say. Yeah, I mean, I'm you know I'm a little old school when it comes to shoes. Mm-hmm. <laughs> on, on 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 some levels, but all joking aside, I do think. Um, what we wear on our feet says a lot about how we ground ourselves to reality on some, mm. on some level. I like that. I really do. Well, Hey Barry, we got to move towards, towards wrapping up. Unfortunately. Um, do you want to, do you want to do any, any plugs for anything you got coming up soon or for your, your social media or anything? Uh, well, you know, um, I'm on Patreon. So, uh, you can check out my Patreon if you like. Um, in fact, in January, I think in January, I'm going to start doing a weekly sermon, a radical theology sermon really? every week of the year for 2020. Weekly? Yeah. Cool. Fantastic. That's awesome. But, you know, I, I, I put a lot of content up there. And, you know, I'm an Instagram whore, so UK <laughs> bloke. You can follow me there. Mm. Oh, I have, a, I have a, um, a book coming out in June, mm. a theological memoir. Ooh, Ooh nice. sounds good. Are you gonna if it's a, a memoir? Are you gonna include anything about your your time with that uh, that Russian uh, televangelism uh, show that you were on? Actually, that's not. I, I did. You know, the, I didn't put that story. Uh, didn't put that story in there because why talk about stuff like that? Because it's <laughs> hilarious. <laughs> but um, yeah, so it's it's kind of a. Um, it's it's a non-linear perspective on on life that's about. So I, it's divided up into you know Freud said that there are four ways we handle the hardship of existence: art, sex, um, intoxicants, and religion. Mm-hmm. So the book is broken up into those four sections, and I talk in those four sections about experiences and ideas and thoughts from my life and from the world around me around those things that sounds really really personal that's awesome yeah it it is quite personal um but it's not like a it's not just oh the story of the story of you know it's not like oh yeah i did this and i did that there are some of those stories but but it's really about um what makes a theological life and uh basically for me that's everything that you live cool that's exciting very cool cool well thank you so much barry and i i genuinely do hope that you come to minneapolis soon and you know what i i was gonna say we need to not wait so long to talk again but when people say that it's i think the majority of time it's disingenuous so i'm not gonna say it
Don't say it, but let's just talk soon. <laughs> God damn it, Barry. <laughs> I, think, I, think, I think what you were trying to say, I mean, don't you think that we should talk sooner? Yeah. There you go. All right, man. Well, I, I appreciate you, dude. Thank you for the time. Uh, thank you. It was great to talk to you. Nice yeah. to meet you, Brian. Yeah, you too. All right. See you again. Bye. Bye. Thanks for being part of our conversation. To continue the conversation, find us on social media at SacredMN. Hi, I'm Caleb with Post-Christian Podcasting. If you enjoyed this show, you might also like another Post-Christian Podcast. Everyone's Autonomous with Marie de la Font. My partner, my ex-partner and I are still, we're like friends, we're on talking terms and stuff, and it's like, there's a lot of people that want me to like burn every photo ever, yeah. uh, talk bad about her, you yeah. know, and just like pretend like that five years didn't exist in my yeah. life. And it's like, I think we get these messages both from the religious, but also Hollywood kinds of stuff. And it's like, why, 